Hello and welcome to the Film File. We're on episode 34. 34. 34. Who would have believed it? And believe it or not, uh, this episode is excited because we have been sponsored by the Devil T-shirt. So if you want a stylish and uniquely designed tee that will make you stand out from a crowd, head over to devilt-shirt.com and, and grab one while you can. And Andy, I know there's a little devil inside of you. There's a huge devil inside of me. And if anyone else wants a devil inside of them, listen to the end of the podcast and you, we've got to give you an exclusive discount code on your first order. Stick around. <laughs> So I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And you've joined us on the Film File. And, you know, we had a lot to talk about this week. We're going to talk about Andy and I getting back into uh, into going to the cinema. Cinemas. Into, going, sitting into, into cinemas. a cinema for the first time in, well, it's the last thing I saw in a cinema was Parasite. Do you remember what the last thing you saw? Uh, the last thing I saw before we shot, oh, oh, it was Onward. Yeah, we saw that and we reviewed it, didn't we? It, it literally came out a few days before we had to go into lockdown. And so one of the afternoons, I just thought, I'm not going to get another chance of this. So we sat and watched it and we um, covered it on the show. It was that was great, our last review, I think, film. wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was our last cinema review before we um, started doing our retro relux. Um, but unfortunately, while we wanted to spend a lot of time talking about the good things of being back in the cinema, of course, Friday, the news emerged of the tragic death of Chadwick Boseman, actor, producer and writer who died at the age of 43. Uh, from heartbreaking news and it is actually you, you you couldn't hit it more on the head andy that it's it's absolutely heartbreaking i mean we've had a lot of huge losses in recent years you know there's the ones that have impacted us personally like stanley impacted me in a huge way because i've grown up with stanley as like a, a mentor figure in comic books but this hit me harder than anyone else in recent years i can only think of bowie and probably prince uh, Bowie, I, I absolutely wept. It was it was heartbreaking, and this has felt the same. I've been absolutely heartbroken by this news. I never knew Chad Big Bozeman. Uh, I only know him from his career. I've not seen much of his work. I thought he was uh, a fantastic as as James Brown, uh, and of course, he'll always be. And, and and we are a geek show. It'll always be to us uh, King T'Challa. Uh, but I, I it hit me hard. Hit me hard for lots of reasons. I, of course, I felt sad when when somebody famous dies and. Uh, you know, there's far too far too young an age. Well, that was it, I think, for me. It was it's one impact thing because we're both past that age. So when someone dies who's younger than you, it really like it really hits you hard that you know people younger than us shouldn't be passing away. No. He came to my attention um, in 2013 because uh, his film, the 42, the Jackie Robinson Robinson story. Now in the UK, we know nothing about baseball. We don't understand baseball, but that film struck a chord with me. I loved it. I felt I got him on my radar from that point onwards and like you say his portrayal of james brown was absolutely fantastic yeah, that so that was my intro to it when he got cast as t'challa i was straight away this is going to be an amazing actor he's going to bring so much to it because i'd seen what he can deliver but i think one of the hardest things about this is he died from after you know losing the battle with colon cancer which he's been fighting in secret since 2016. Yeah, well, he's been making the Avengers Endgame, uh, Infinity War. 21 Bridges. 21 Bridges. The Five Bloods. Yeah. Message from the King, Marshall. You know, in that four years, he has left behind a monumental CV. And while some of the films are quite average, I mean, 21 Bridges is an average film, he is spectacular in it. Yeah, it is. And he's, he has made such an impact for, for a lot of people. I mean, as white guys, we could never 
really get the cultural relevance. We, well, we understood it, but the cultural relevance of, of Black Panther for uh, a black kid to see on screen somebody who, who looked like them playing a superhero yeah. that was accepted worldwide, that, that said couldn't be done. You know, Marvel stood by this and, and made a movie which, you know, studios didn't think would, would have that potential. And they stood by it and they brought a charismatic actor with a quiet sense of authority uh, to the role that, that made him his own. The way that Christopher Reeve will always be Superman. You know, yeah. th those two roles are are, are embedded in, in, in your reference to that character that's why there was so many uh over twitter uses of uh, wakanda forever or the king is dead you know those th this role will always be seen as as chadwick boseman and t'challa they are they are the yeah, same star being. was well and truly on the rise um you know imagine what we could have seen from him absolutely absolutely suddenly going forwards but you know what a CV, what a sad loss to the industry, what a sad loss to humanity. He was a great person, great actor. You know, we'd never met him. And, you know, he's one of those people that you think, I would have loved him. Yeah, and there's been just a huge outpouring of grief out there, uh, which has saddened me even more because it's everybody else is feeling your loss. Uh, it, it, came as a, it came as a real shock. There was a, a picture that came out of just a few months ago, which he was looking very gaunt and, and very frail. Mm. And I think somebody said he's he's losing weight for a for a role, but you know the signs were there. Um, but he fought on. So uh, a hero, not only on the screen, but a hero off screen, having to go through that. And, and our condolences to his friends and family. It, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. When I was a little kid, my first encounter with with somebody passing who was uh, who was an on screen hero, it, I just couldn't believe it because they were still alive when I watched the TV yeah. series that they were in and they were there every week for, for some time and their role got recast and uh, I never accepted the other actor in that particular role. I, I, who knows what's going to happen? I, I personally hope they don't recast uh, T'Challa yeah. and do something different because his legacy is going to live on. I mean, he's in the MCU animated series, What If, where he voiced, he voiced T'Challa in that. So uh, yeah. I'd rather they not recast it, but it's, but it's early days. It's, it's up to Marvel, it's up to, to people much higher up than we will be, but, but an absolutely sad loss. Okay, so moving on, and we don't want to dwell too too much because uh, we have the news. And Andy, as ever, has been trawling the Tinterweb, picking you. Tinterwebby. Tinterwebbing, I think that's <laughs> such a thing, to, to bring you the up-to-date news in a segment we just call the news. I love it when we use like Yorkshire terms like Tinterweb and things like that. And I wonder what our, our American listeners think whenever we come out with random things that mean nothing to them. Um, so on with the news. So Rocky Four. Now, the Rocky series was, uh, yeah, it started great and then it got very ropey. And a load of people have a love for Rocky Four. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I've never had a love for it because it. It feels, I mean, particularly now, it feels really dated. It was cheesy. It was very much like East versus West. It's like Ivan Drago versus Rocky and like America is the hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very embedded in that Cold War era. Well, it's getting a director's cut that's been confirmed by Stallone for the 35th anniversary this year. 35 years. I know. I gave up after Rocky 3. I think Rocky is 
is in, is in my all-time favourite movies. I, I adore Rocky. I think it's a brilliant sports film. Came upon a quiz I was on over the weekend. It was the first sports okay. film to win Best Picture. And I, I think it's fabulous. Rocky 2, I've got a lot of light for. Rocky 3, it was starting to slip. It was unnecessary. Rocky 4, I'd given up. I didn't come back until Rocky Balboa. And Rocky Balboa Which was, was a, a great, great film. closure for his story. Absolute great closure. I mean, you're best not to have watched Rocky Five because it's not good. Right. Uh, but the director's cut of Rocky Four, whilst we don't know what Stallone's going to be trimming and moving around and editing, the director has been quite critical of his own work through the years. And even he acknowledges that Rocky Four is very much of its time and maybe doesn't quite fit in this environment. So it's going to be interesting to see what he puts together with a new cut of it. One thing that we do know he's taken out. Yeah, and I saw this on the headline, and you had to explain it to me before we came on air. So in the film, he gives Paulie a robot, a six-foot robot that um, helps him around the house. And it is the part of the film that you look at it and go, what on earth am I watching? And it, it, you might as well be watching Metal Mickey on TV. It's that kind of cheesy awfulness. To put it in Stallone's terms, the robot is going to the junkyard forever. No more <laughs> robot. I don't like the robot anymore. Did it speak like a Cylon? It speak. It spoke to Paulie, and it oh, it was it was really bad. It, what's really odd though is that the machine, which was named Seiko, is actually a member of the Actors Union. <laughs> so the Screen Actors Union might actually have something to say about his whole part being cut. <laughs> Let's hope not. It, it like was a very movie. bizarre times, and there was clearly far too much, um, far too much powdery substance getting snorted during the eighties for this to have made it into the film. For a robot to have been part of an actors' union, and for the film to have been what it was, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does for it because I think that you know, yeah, Rocky Five is really bad, but Rocky Four could have been a good film, but it's too embedded in that era, and it'd be interesting to see if it can actually feel a lot more grounded as the earlier films were okay so what else have you got for us so we've had many many studios talking about their release dates shuffling well paramount have now dropped all their release date shuffle so coming to america 2 is the only film which is left for 2020 everything else which paramount had due out before the end of 2020 has moved the snake eyes their gi joe spin-off that's moved a whole year to October 2021. Clifford the Big Red Dog, and I know you were looking forward I, I, to that I film. Was, I know. Oh. Am I going to be disappointed? Well, unfortunately, you're not going to be getting it this November. You have to wait another year for November 2021. And also, the new Paranormal Activity film, which was set for March 2021, is now March 2022. I didn't know there was another one coming. To be perfectly honest, that passed me by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't heavily publicised anyway. It was just kind of on the list of this is coming out then, but they've moved it a whole year. Screen 5 is targeted January 2022. Yeah, saw that. And there's another untitled Hasbro event film, which was set for October 2021, which has vanished off the slate entirely. Now, is this the long-rumoured new Transformers film? Mm, well, there has been talk about one. But I, you know, I think if it's a Transformers film, I, you'd have thought there'd be more speculation. The thing is, I mean, there's been speculation that they wanted to take the approach that Bumblebee had done, but Bumblebee didn't really perform that well but at the it box was office. Really good. So it's always been like the, the, you know, Paramount have always said we're going to make one, we're going to make one. It seems coincidental that they now just took something off the slate because this is the this is 
this makes sense that if they're going to go down the Optimus Prime Origins story that we're talking about or whatever else spinning off from Bumblebee, maybe in this time they don't want to invest that money into a project that might not hit as big in the box office as they need. So I reckon it's a back burner thing for the Transformers franchise. It's all speculation. Who knows? Hmm. Kingsman has delayed again. Okay. Uh, this was due out in only a few more weeks in the UK. It was a mid-September release. Disney announced over the past week that the plans have now shifted it to a late February slot, which is a slot that tends to see that, oh my, this film's pretty bad, bury it, films get dropped into. I've got that feeling that might be one of those. I really have with with Kingsman on this one. Yeah. Whether it's the case here or just another example of Disney showing no confidence in cinemas during this time, we don't know. But late February is early February seen as like you catch the kids half term. Late February seen as like, oof, Jupiter Ascending, push it away. (laughs) It's made me lose a lot of confidence in this film. In its place for the UK audience, the Bill and Ted's movie has moved forwards one week to fill that gap on the 16th of September. Uh, In additional Disney news, Nomadland is being set for December the 4th. Okay. Um, Luca, which is another Pixar animation which is in the works, has June the 18th, 2021. And Eternals is now Eternals and not The Eternals because uh, James Gunn comically tweeted online that he stole the The for The Suicide Yeah, I heard that. It was very good. (laughs) Um, That's that's still remains set for early February 2021. So they've still got optimism that they can go into 2021 and start the ball rolling with a new Marvel film. So where does that leave us with uh, Black Widow? Still holds its November release date for the UK. Okay. So uh, we we might we might still get it. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Every every studio is watching what Tenet is doing at the moment, and it's not being released in the US yet. But they're watching all the international figures. The international figures haven't been reported properly yet. They've been holding off. They're going to compile it all together sometime this week. So it's going to be interesting to see whether it's opened as well as they need, because if it hasn't, then I reckon on the next episode, we're going to be doing half an hour of release date changes. And just to point out, we're going to be reviewing Tenant in the second half of the show. We're also going to be talking about New Mutants, which we... uh, Another film that's been a longly waited. It has indeed. (laughs) Uh, remakes we love remakes don't we, we do if they, you know what i don't have anything against a remake if it brings something new to the story rather than you feel it's a cash-in because when people complain about remakes i always point to john carpenter's the thing is a better movie than howard hawks the thing well interestingly well, one of the segue. remake stroke one of the remake stroke reboots is that carpenter and bloomhouse have been speaking about their idea to bring the thing back well, as long as it's not a remake, because as far as I'm concerned, the thing is perfect. But as we saw when they tried to do a prequel to it, there's there's a still a lot of tales to be told about about the thing. Did you ever read there was a uh, a Dark Horse comics that did a direct yep. sequel to the thing, and it was called Thing from Another World, and it was fantastic. Yep. It had a three issue mini series, and then I think they did a six issue one following on from That's that. What they did. Yeah, I've got them. I've got their their pride of my collection. They were really, really good. If this um, remake reboot happens, then, you know, my comic collection goes up in price, so I'm all for it. (laughs) But it's (laughs) the fact that uh, we do like what Bloomhouse is doing, and we we certainly like what John Carpenter can, can bring to it. So I can see it being an like not a remake. It will be a spin-off or a continuation because look what Carpenter and Bloomhouse when they put their heads together and went Halloween. Let's bring that back, and everyone went. But you've already made loads of sequels and everything. You were ignoring all that. 
yeah, but there's already been a reboot. Yeah, we're ignoring that. We're going to do a proper sequel, a soft reboot sequel to the original. And I reckon we'll see the same here. We'll see a soft reboot of the franchise and maybe take it out of the Arctic setting. Yeah, yeah, there's possibilities. It doesn't have to be set in set in the Arctic. I mean, we as I said, we had the, the Arctic prequel. setting is the only thing that keeps the thing under control. Yeah. So take it to another part of the world and you've got potential for some interesting stories getting told. I'm all for it. I'm all for if it. Well. Fans in general are very much mixed on it, but having Carpenter himself talking about it and coming up with ideas alleviates a lot of the concerns. In other reboot remake news, The Nutty Professor is getting another remake treatment. Hashtag and why not? Because of course it is. Uh, the Scream 5 co-writer James Vanderbilt is attached to produce this one. And it's expected to follow the same plotline beat to the original, which is basically a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for comedy effect. I love the original Jerry Lewis version. I didn't yeah. like um, I didn't like the Eddie Murphy remake. I thought it was a bit pointless. There's a dark side to the Jerry Lewis version. And yeah. um, it, it's hysterically, hysterically... Uh, hysterically funny and i love the i love his take on on buddy love the eddie murphy version i can take or leave i, I saw that they were what they were going for and i think it ticked the box for family fun entertainment but like you say it, it, yeah the, the original version has that underlying darkness that works nicely for those who don't know because you've not watched either of them it's like wow really and if you don't uh, just go back a, and watch the, the the jerry lewis version it's about a nerdy professor who drinks a potion that makes him handsome but very obnoxious yeah Story of my life. A Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, with uh, someone wanting to get a date. How the remake's going to go? Who knows? Mm -hmm. But let's see um, what comes from it. And no casting connected to this at this point? Nothing connected to it at this point. It's literally just in the um, speculation and creations stage of it, which is a place that another film that has been long in this situation has finally got a writer, and that's Haunted Mansion. And that ties in nicely to Eddie Murphy. It does, because uh, this is part of the Disney... Uh, rides that they've turned into movies and successfully and brilliantly did it with Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, they they did Haunted Mansion, which wasn't scary, and it was a family ghost film, and it starred Eddie Murphy during his Disney phase. Uh, we've got Jungle Cruise with The Rock and Emily Blunt coming some at some point. So, yeah, they're doing Haunted Mansion. The writer has been attached, which is the writer who gave us such gems as Heat and the recent Ghostbusters film. Not the one which hasn't been released yet, but the one from a few years ago. You know the one. Yeah, that's uh, Katie Dippold. And interestingly enough, and the reason we know this, I, for some reason, uh, never got to see the Ghostbusters reboot. It was on TV before I was going to meet you to go and see New Mutants. Uh, <laughs> and I couldn't believe how... How, how terrible it was. Not the fact that it was a female cast had nothing to do with it. It was just a purely, purely bad film. Yeah, it, it was a bad film. And it was a shame that at the time, if you if when it came out, if you dared to say it was a bad film, you got accused of misogyny. Uh, you know, you obviously don't like strong female leads. It's like, well, neither does Paul Feig looking at what he's <laughs> given us there. He doesn't like strong female leads. Anyone who tries to criticise me of not liking strong female leads because I don't like Ghostbusters, well, why on earth is Alien and Aliens in my top ten films? You don't have to. You have to tell me. I just thought it was it was purely bad, and I really like the cast. I think I thought the, yeah, the cast were really well, the, were the best thing in it. Clearly, they held it together, it, but it was just Kate McKinnon was a joy in that film, and Kristen Wiig could just do no wrong. In, in most things she's in. And I, I can't wait to see her in Wonder Woman 1984. And I think she's fantastic. She's one of my 
favorite screen presences. I think she she's she's just amazing. But I just hated Ghostbusters. It was it was a train wreck of a movie. So let's see what happens with Haunted Mansion. Will we eventually get it? Well, it has been in the pipeline this reboot for at least five years. So I'm not holding my breath on this one. Yeah, because Guillermo del Toro was connected to it at one point. What an interesting take he would have given. And Ryan Gosling was briefly on board, uh, but he seems to have got buried. No pun intended. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Disney development graveyard. In other remake news, going to HBO is a new adaptation of Michael Crichton's Sphere. Yeah. Now, Sphere, what did you think of it? Came out with a strong cast, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Lee Schreiber, Sharon Stone, Queen Latifah. Directed by Barry Levinson, who is one of my all-time favourite directors because he directed Diner. And it just didn't seem to work. I don't know why it didn't work. It was intriguing. It was, from what I gather, pretty close to the book. Yeah. I just thought the the denouement of let's forget what's happened uh, just made it all all worthless. I was excited for this film when it originally got released. Yeah, me too. Uh, when I watched it, it just it just plodded along. Mm. It for, for you know the the story is it's set under the sea. Some scientists find what appears to be a millennia old spaceship that has crashed and thus starts a tense sci-fi thriller in which suspicion about those closest to each other are thrown out. Yeah, it's a pro- it should be a proper psychodrama sci-fi, but it ended up just being a generic straight-to-video kind of feel. Yeah. Uh, but now, for HBO, they've got a TV series with the creative forces behind Westworld and Person of Interest working on it. So that'll be Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan. Yeah, with the quality that they bring to the show so far and with it being a hbo one it gives me a lot more confidence in seeing what ha- happens and a mini series as well allows it to do the slow build yeah yeah there's a lot going on in it and i think this it was one of those where there was a lot to think about and in the in a movie when you've only got a certain amount of time to tell a story like that you, you, you probably yeah. didn't get the right feel for it so yeah i'm very interested color me impressed on that one and to round off the news this week Kathleen Kennedy has given a little bit of an update on the future of the Star Wars franchise in the movies. We know that the TV shows are still getting made and they're going to be focusing on that for the next few years. But the movies were last reported as being on hold for a few years. Plans to come back in 2023 at the earliest. Well, she's spoken with the rap over this past week and I've got a quote from her here, which basically explains where they're going. The stories have been told within this universe over the last 40 odd years. There's now the realisation that this is a mythology that actually spans about 25,000 years when you really start to look at all the different stories that have been told, whether it's in books and games. So finally, they've realised they don't have to just focus on the Skywalker saga era and they can actually break through that. It, this is what we said when Disney took over. It, it was, uh, and they proved that they can do that with The Mandalorian. So, you know, 25,000 years of mythology and storytelling, and that's not including, like, they could jump into the far future of this galaxy. So it looks like they're finally going, let's back away from what's already known, and let's see what stories we can take elsewhere. We know that Taika Waititi is apparently working on an idea. There's still Ryan Johnson's idea for the trilogy is still getting mooted around. But what ones they're going to come back with in a few years, we don't know. You've got to come back with Star Wars to do something new and fresh. As I've just said, the way Mandalorian has done it. Mandalorian managed to make a a spaghetti western in that galaxy. So let's hope we can get to see other styles of film and genre getting put into that setting. I'm all for it. I'm well for it. And that is the news. 
So if you're a fan of the show, you're enjoying what you've heard so far and you uh, uh, you want to know more, please hit your subscribe button because it will uh, make us not only very happy, but we enjoy doing this so much and we want you to enjoy it as well. So uh, if you are a fan, tell your friends, tell uh, tell your enemies, just tell anybody to uh, get involved, <laughs> like FilmFile. And if you want to know more, if you ask us questions, you want to come up with some suggestions, you can reach us. You can find us on FilmFile at FilmFile UK. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash FilmFile UK. The only thing we need now is an Instagram account. And you can see what we look like. Maybe That's not. not a good idea. It'll put everyone off listening to us because <laughs> they'll be able to picture us then. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, because of, of lockdown and all things pandemic, I have been setting Andy a challenge to watch the films, which for some reason, unknown to man, he has missed. Absolute classics like Wall Street. What's the in Gilbert Great we did last week? And, and this week, I set Andy the challenge to go back and watch fresh the Richard Attenborough 1992 uh, biographical drama film about the life of Charlie Chaplin, simply titled Chaplin. Chaplin! They tried to ruin his reputation. How old is this one? Well, sir, she's underage is all that matters. And end his career. He is talking about America! You be creative for a change. Charlie! But no one could destroy the genius. Just waiting for that other shot, Sid. Of Chaplin, Robert Downey Jr. in a Richard Attenborough film, Chaplin. Produced and directed by Richard Attenborough, starred Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei, Dan Aykroyd, Penelope Ann Miller, and Kevin Kline. And features uh, Charlie Chaplin's own daughter, Geraldine Chaplin, in the role of his mother, Hannah Chaplin. Uh, the film was adapted by William Boyd, Brian Forbes, and the great William Goldman, from Chaplin's autobiography, uh, his life and art. Andy, what did you make of Chaplin? Uh, well, I'll start off by saying that there's very valid reasons why I never saw this film when it came out. Okay. Because I was never much of a fan of Charlie Chaplin. Which is a good enough reason not to, 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 to think about watching it, to be honest. Yeah. I was all, I was always more of a Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy guy. And Charlie Chaplin never quite resonated with me. And so that's why I skirted this one on release. Now I've seen the film, I'm still not that bothered with Chaplin. And it's, I think I think it's because the film feels very slight and superficial. It doesn't feel like it gets into any of the nitty gritty of stuff. And it feels a bit too drawn out and pondering to give it the closest words that I can think to fit to it. There's, there's issues that I have with the film. The issues are not the casting. I think the cast are marvellous. Robert Downey Jr. is absolutely brilliant in it. He's acrobatic. He immerses himself in the role. This is a young Downey Jr. And he's so likable and so energetic on screen. As you said, he immersed himself into the role. He's, he's absolutely superb. And for a lot of people, this was this was Downey Jr. Real entry into to leading man territory from, from being a, uh, that supporting actor role. Yeah. And blew me away when I saw it. Uh, for that reason alone, I love this film because of Robert Downey Jr. And I, I'm going to agree with everything you're going to say. And I find <laughs> that the heart of it is the heart that you get with most bio, biographical films is this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Uh, and they're almost vignettes of the next tragedy or the next high, and then the next low. I tend to find that the best biographical films look at one small portion of someone's life. You've got things like a Capote. 
that was a marvellous biographical film because it was only focused on a short period of time. The problem that this film has is it tries to look at his whole life from childhood to old age, which means that there's no time to spend to make you care about anything that's going on along the way. And as the story meanders along from wife to wife, you get introduced to a new relationship and then it's discarded three minutes later and you're like, oh, I recognise that actress. from Oh, she's gone. And you don't care why the relationships break up. You're just like, meh. It happens. And that kind of, if you couldn't connect to anyone except, for, I mean, this, you've got to connect to the central character and Downey Jr. does a great job of making you almost connect to him. But if you can't connect to anyone around him, then having that isolated person around a load of non-entity faces doesn't quite resonate and it doesn't quite draw you into the story. And it gives a bit of a safe approach for the biography. I suppose, you know, having involvement of Charlie Chaplin's daughter in the film probably didn't help matters because it meant that they had to be careful not to upset with anything which might be a bit distasteful. Well, I saw this film at the premiere and I saw Richard Attenborough give uh, his introduction and he was enamoured by Chaplin. He absolutely yeah. loved Chaplin and you that can comes tell. through. It was, it was a film for me that was about seeing it with Attenborough doing the opening and I got a chance to, to quit hello and it, and it changed it changed my life in a lot of ways because I had a quick, quick conversation with Atterbury and it was quick and he'll never, he would never would have remembered it, but it's one yeah. of those things. And he, and I said, I, I want to get into filmmaking in some way. And he just said, dear boy, you have to do it. And, uh, and it meant so much. And it was his love of, of, of Chaplin that came through. So I enjoyed it more knowing why he made this film and seeing that speech, but everything yeah. you're saying and retrospectively looking at it, it is. It, it does suffer from all those things that bio, biographical films suffer from. It tries to tell too much of a story in a short space of time and yet still feels like it's taking too long to say, to say it. I don't like the framing mechanism as well. They've got a fictional publisher played by Anthony Hopkins speaking with Chaplin as an old man talking about his biography that he's going to be releasing. And I didn't need that framing because I can see the events on screen and it ends up, it has a corresponding voiceover between the pair as the talking thing. It's like, I don't need this. It's on screen. Stop patronising me. Now, as we've said, the, the highlight of the film is is uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yes, absolutely marvellous in it. And, it, and it's, it's a beautiful performance and you recognise the, the talent that Robert Downey Jr. has. Or, you know, at, at that point in his, his career, it was... He was an up-and-coming star, and, and for personal reasons, as we know. But the studio wanted Robin Williams, or they wanted Billy Crystal, uh, and even mentioned Jim Carrey. But I can't think of anybody else in this film other, other than Robert Downey Jr. Not only did he begin to, to look like, like Chaplin as it went through, and so much so that Attenborough included actual footage of Chaplin, because at that point you believed yeah. in him so much. It, it was about his performance, was absolutely absolutely amazing and for other actors that film should have opened the doors to to leading man territory in in, in bigger films but unfortunately as we know it, it took time for robert downey jr interestingly on a side note uh, a friend of mine was working on ali mike beale and got to know robert downey jr and everybody in the cast said that you know the guy is a genius an absolute genius but at that point in his not in his life he needed those other things those those things which dis was destroying him to make him that genius and you see a lot with musicians you you need that darker part of your life to to be that brilliant but 
yeah, he's a tour de force in it and, and makes the film. And it makes it a it makes it the memorable film because of him. Overall, I'm glad I watched it, but I have no interest in watching it again, and it's not made me want to go and seek out Charlie Chaplin films. Unlike Stan and Ollie, which I thought was a good biopic that made me go home and get online and go, I, I need to see some of Lovell and Hardy shorts and thoroughly immerse myself in them. But that did the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is to take, rather than look at an entire life, it takes it's a moment a in time. Yeah, and I think that's where you sh- where you should do a biopic is always just focus on a short period, an influential period, rather than trying to cram everything into one thing. It fails in the same way that other biopics that have done too long a time frame have failed. It's okay. a good film. It looks great. It sounds great. Just doesn't quite work. Okay, so for next week, I'm going to take you down to. Uh, I'm going to take you somewhere else. I know. I'm take you down. <laughs> down i'm gonna take you downtown and i'm gonna take you to black swan i've had this sat in front of the tv ready for me to watch for ages now and i've still not got round to it so uh yeah this is one that has been long long in wait for me to watch interested to see what you think of black swan okay so thankfully the cinemas are back open uh, it was a joyous uh, a joyous occasion to sit next to andy in a darkened theater and the flickering light of the cinema it was uh, it was good to be back. I can tell you that much. And um, we started it as many other people are starting it with Christopher Nolan's Tenet. There's a cold war. Technology that can reverse the flow of time. Time travel. No. Inversion. We have been attacked by the future. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Maybe I lost my edge. Edge is still intact. So, just to make it clear, we're aware that this film is not out in the US. And even though it's out internationally, not everyone's seen it. And if you've not seen it, you're going into the film probably the same way that we did. Because you have no idea what the film's about. Because all the marketing and promotions have been very secretive. You're going in blind. And this has been a marvellous marketing campaign to do this. So what we're going to do with a review is we're going to do a review now, which is non-spoilerific. We're not going to talk about plot. We're not going to talk about like any elements that don't quite work in the film or do work in the film in any detail. We're going to talk about the overall feel of the film. And then at the end of the episode, after the final music sting, we will slot in a little spoilerific dig down a bit deeper. So let's get started. Initial feelings on Tenet. Okay, so to, just to give you a, a taste of what we can tell you about it, the film stars John David Washington as a character known simply as the protagonist who's inducted into a secret organisation, Tenet, on the trail of bullets that can go backwards in time. Have I got that right, Andy? That's that's about as much of the plot as the trailers ever gave away. From there, he finds himself facing off against Kenneth Branagh's Andre Sator in a bid to avert an apocalyptical event. To a lot of people, and especially Warner Brothers, this is the saviour of cinema after the pandemic. I personally don't think this is the right film to do that. I think if the cinemas were were, were putting on 
something that was going to draw people in, I would have gone with Black Widow. But we or have Wonder Woman eighty four or Wonder Woman eighty four because there's a lot going off in this film, as you would expect from a Christopher Nolan film. Yeah, it's it's clever, but sometimes it's far too clever for its own good, and at other times, and the paradox that is Christopher Nolan films. It's not as clever as it thinks it is. Yeah, it's Nolan at his most Nolan-esque. Ever since Inception, when he came along with a really clever sci-fi, which we covered on the last episode. If you've not listened to it, get back there and listen to that to see what we think about Nolan overall. We specified last week that we think he's a clinical director. His technical focus is superb, and this is no difference. This is Nolan trying to be clever. But as we saw with films like Interstellar, he thinks he's clever with the story, makes loads of mistakes with elements of the story that aren't as clever, but patronizingly tries to tell us that we're in the wrong. I'll, I'll agree with everything you're saying. I mean, you and I have not, and we, and we said we need to process this when we came out. And you do have to process it because there's a lot yeah. going on. It's not a film that you can instantly make your mind up on when you leave. And I, I mean, I'll say that when I posted on Letterboxd my star rating, within 24 hours, it had lost half a star because as I'm starting to think more and more about it, I'm starting to spot things in there that didn't quite gel. And we'll talk more in detail about them at the end of the episode. What we can tell you is this is Christopher Nolan's James Bond. There are lots and lots of elements that it's a rethinking of how he would do Bond. And we know he's a Bond fan because at the end of Inception, he, he draws inspiration from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So this is his Bond. There's even a Q character. Uh, John David Washington plays it as a Bond, but without the charisma of a Bond for me. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I think the person with the most charisma in this is uh, Robert Patterson. Who's fantastic in it. Who I've never enjoyed uh, Patterson as much as this and makes me want to see his Batman even more. The surrounding cast are a lot more interesting than John David Washington, who... You know, you've already mentioned that he hasn't been given a name in it. He's just the protagonist. And yeah, it, it's everyone around him who you want to know more about, but you don't get chance to learn more about. Yeah, the leading man is you, you don't want to know much about. You don't particularly invest as much as you do with the, the other people around him. Without spoiling plot-wise, it's a film that showcases, like you said, how much he loves Bond films. This seems to be his show card to say, make me a Bond director sometime down the line but it just doesn't gel all the typical nolan effects are in there the monumental set pieces that are woven together brilliant visuals a great use of sound which does annoyingly reduce dialogue to background noise at points but it tries to be clever and when it tries to explain the clever to you it then buries it underneath loads of other noise so you can't quite follow or just kind of goes eh, just go with it i feel that everything that we said that inception was good for you know we said that in Inception, he used uh, Ellen Page's character as our point of entry to layer on exposition in a natural flow. There's none of that in here. It expects you to just accept what's going on and follow it through. It gives you all the things that you want from Nolan. It gives you bravado filmmaking. In, in And he has a very realistic, and, and I don't want to say Kubrick style, but I'm going to say Kubrick style, <laughs> uh, because I think that's a flaw for him. But he gives you... He gives you cinematic moments. He gives you a film that should be seen at the cinema. He has a love affair with cinema and he has a love affair with with the way that he, he, he talks about linear storytelling. All those things are there. There are moments in this film which you watch and your jaw will drop. 
there are moments where you have to to look at each other and go how did he do it how how was that done on screen because it's a it's a very practical looking film but there's something missing and for me and it's the thing that's missing in most of uh, nolan's film and it's hard and the yeah, heart's definitely hard is is patterson and Elizabeth Debicki, but it's not your leading man. Yeah, it's a cold film at the end of the day, as I as I think most of Nolan's films are. Great cast, visual treat, great sound, technically brilliant, but not as good as it thinks it is, and not the savior to get people back, as we'll probably see when we get uh, get the figures through. Yeah, stick with us for later, and we'll be a little bit more in depth. And I just point out there will probably be spoilers. The other film that Andy and I have had to see in the reawakening of cinema is a film that has been delayed in its own time frame for the last 50 years, I think. Um, and they started that, making this in 1912, I think. They did, <laughs> that, with uh, a wind-up camera. We've been waiting for this film for seemingly forever. Uh, it's finally hit the cinemas. It's been the prospect of it going straight to uh, VOD have been mentioned countless times, countless times on this program. Uh, and that's Marvel's New Mutants. New Mutants are dangerous. That's why you're here. Ooh, scary. Oh, this isn't a hospital. It's a cage. Together, we can get out of here. So am I. The New Mutants. That was so hot. So Andy, tell us about New Mutants. So New Mutants is adapted based on the comic book series that came out around the late 80s to early 90s. And it's particularly focusing on one storyline from that era, which was to do with the demon birth. And so it's it's an X-Men mutants kind of film with a whole load of new characters set in what's looks like an asylum with horror aspects to it as we're introduced to a bunch of new mutants hence the title that haven't quite got control of their powers because they're all in their teens at this point in time and only just discovered it's exactly what the new mutants was as a comic it's a, it's an offshoot of the x-men world dealing with kind of lesser powered characters uh this was the first in the comics to actually become an offshoot of of um of the x-men yep interesting enough with now you've got at least 10,000 X-Men comics, New Mutants was the first one to come along. So, starring uh, Anna Taylor-Joy as Ilyana Rasputin, uh, as Ronnie Sinclair, Maisie Williams, uh, Sam Cuthry, played by Charlie Hignell, you'll know from Stranger Things, uh, Henry Zaga plays Roberto Di Costa. So, four mutant teams who are sequestered into a hospital run by the mysterious Dr. Celia Reyes, played by Alice Braga. When a newcomer, Daniel Danny Moonstar, played by Blue Hunt, joins them at this strange facility. Events begin to occur with each mutant experiencing their greatest fear coming to life. So while I liked it, what this film felt like was the pilot episode to The New Mutants, either franchise or TV series. It was brought to us by Josh Boone, who was uh, at that point on a bit of a crest of a wave after doing Fault in Our Stars. And... It's a film, unfortunately, that because we've had to wait for for so long, we sort of built up in our brains that this is going to be not only the final ending to the to the 20th Century Fox mutant saga, but something a little bit different and something that at least go out on on the crest of a wave after the, the after the dumpster fire that was uh, a Dark Phoenix. 
So what have we got, Andy? Have we got the saviour to look back and cherish uh, Fox's uh, mutant saga, or have we got another dumpster fire? Well, as you know, that I was not enamoured with this film at the start of its production. And when the first trailer came out, I just didn't like it, and I was so against it. And then as it's got closer and closer to the release date, I've been more and more swayed towards it. And the last few trailers got me really like, actually, this could be good. I personally have a lot of love for it. Like you say, I mean, I've been saying exactly the same thing online over the past few days. It feels like the pilot of a TV series. And if it had been the pilot of a TV series, I would definitely be tuning in for the whole of the first season and hoping for a second season to come. Because I think there's something there. This is a lot better than the last few X films. And ignoring Logan. Logan is its own thing. It's marvellous. I'm not touching that. But Days of Future Past was average. Apocalypse was diabolical. But even that was better than Dark Phoenix. This would have been potentially the film that would have turned around the X franchise had Fox actually released it instead of Dark Phoenix. It's intriguing. The cast are great. I think the cast are really well picked. Yeah, and that's the sad thing, is that we'll not get to see this cast again. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a great bunch. The characters are interesting. I mean, I know what these characters are capable of from the comics, so I know where their story paths could go. And I was most intrigued to see how Magic or um, Ilyana Rasputin would get portrayed. And Anya Taylor-Joy is absolutely perfectly placed in the role. She is magnificent, and it brought every element of that character that I wanted brought to the screen. This is a this is a good X Men film. If it had been a TV movie, yeah. If it had been part of a TV series, it's let down is that it leaves it at the end with the hope of sequels that we're never going to see. I agree. I I liked it. I didn't like it as much as you did. I thought it felt it felt small, which is not a bad thing. I like the aesthetic of of being uh, a young adult horror film. I thought it was an interesting way to go. I like the fact that they stuck to the Chris Claremont, Bill Sinkovich, Demon Bear story as a way to introduce these characters rather than having them an offshoot of uh, Professor X again uh, and brought these characters together. I loved the cast. It felt very slight. It felt a little bit too low-key. It felt as though why not tying it into the bigger X-Men I, which I didn't mind, certainly didn't mind. There were references to the X-Men. Yeah, I, I like where it was going. If this had been a TV pilot, I would have stuck around as much as you would to see where it goes. But it just felt a lot like that. It felt like a TV pilot. And it felt as though, and especially now, we know it's not going to ever be concluded. We're not going to see the other chapters. It just felt very small uh, and a little bit too small. And there's not enough meat on the bones. The characters were good. The situation was a good setup. It just felt a little bit bland. Yeah, it it felt like a generic origin story, but it it left me wanting more. And that like, this is a film that after I watched it, I had my instant response of like giving it like three stars, and then I gave it an extra half star the next day because I realised I wanted to watch it again. And if I want to watch something again, then it's actually not a bad film. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to where we're going to go. In uh, in the X Men stories, there's been lots of sort of rumours with, with how uh, how Marvel and Disney are going to take it. But as an ending, it certainly is better than Dark Phoenix, and I think it's better than Apocalypse. I'll put it next to uh, Days of Future Past. I think it had a lot of things going to it, mainly the cast. Um, it just feels a little bit too uh, a little bit too subdued, and it needed nothing. Nothing about it was memorable. 
There was no fantastic fight sequence. There were two two smaller pieces to to make it uh, to make you go ooh and ah after you'd seen it. If you've been interested in the X franchise at all, I would recommend going to see this as the final. This is what we could have had of the X Fox's X franchise. I would position it yeah, alongside the TV shows like Runaways and things like that. I wouldn't put it alongside Legion, which was a whole different thing. And, oh, if you've not watched Legion, get it watched. It's worth seeing. It's an interesting point of view to take. You can see what works, what doesn't work. Is it as bad as the 35% on Rotten Tomato suggests? No. Nowhere near that bad. Is it as closer to the 53% of audience score? Yes. It's a good film. It's nothing great. So as promised, this episode has been sponsored by The Devil T-Shirt. And they've given us an exclusive discount for all of you uh, friends of the pod. So head over to www.devilt-shirt.com and use a discount code FILMFILE2020 for 20% off your first order. Hurry, as this offer is subject to availability. So get the orders in while you can. And I know, Andy, you have a, you have a Devil T coming to you. I'm ha- I've opted for the uh, classic... The broken font work look of it on a navy blue top. top. I think it's going to look marvellous. I love my T-shirts. You know how much I love my T-shirts. You do love a good T. And I love a good logo. And when I saw these T-shirts, I was, yeah, I need one of these in my life. So I've got one coming my way. I'm hoping I'm getting one coming my way. For some reason, I've dipped out on this offer. But if you want one, again, use the discount code FILMFILE2020 for 10% off your first order. And that's it for another show. But just before we go, and we do this every week, Andy, what have you been watching? What have you enjoyed? Uh, what have you read? What have you played? What is your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing is something that I've already seen, but I'm currently re-watching as season three is due to land next early next year. And that is Cobra Kai, which is the sequel to the Karate Kid film from the 80s, made as a TV series. Now, this series got released and didn't quite get the audience that it deserved, but now Netflix have picked up for season three. They've now got hold of season one and two, and apparently, since they've dropped it, it's become one of their hottest watched programs, and I don't blame them. It picks up the story now that Johnny, played again by Willem Zabka, who was the bad kid of the first Karate Kid film, is now in his adulthood, and his life's not gone the way that he, he wanted it to ever since he got kicked in the face by Ralph Macchio's Daniel. Uh, the closing moments of that film. He's the protagonist that we latch onto. Yes, the bad guy is the good guy in this series. Okay. And it works an absolute treat. It plays on the whole, if you look back at the Karate Kid from a different point of view, maybe Johnny wasn't really a bad kid. He was just, you know, misguided in his approach to things. Daniel had come along and stolen his girlfriend. Of course he's going to hate him. So the old rivalry is back on screen as they're both adults. Uh, Daniel is now running a car showroom and like he's a big local celebrity and everyone loves him. And so Johnny, at his last straw, how his life's fallen apart, decides to start up a new karate academy called Cobra Kai. And that's all I need to know. That's all that you need to know. This is a show that everyone who I've recommended it to has dropped into it. And after the first episode, is uh, sent me a message going, Oh, I am so watching all of this in one night. It's a great little show. It really plays well into nostalgia, but also flips it. And it makes you want to go back and re-watch Karate Kid to see it from that different viewpoint. 
that maybe Daniel was the bad guy and maybe Johnny was the good guy. It's a great series. There's a lot of heart in there to make you actually care about someone who is a bit of a selfish character. Brilliant. Oh, that sounds cool. Well, you've, you've sold it to me. I'm not a, I'm not enamoured by Karate Kid the way that a lot of people, I think that particular period, it, it sort of passed me by. So I don't have the love for Karate Kid, but it does sound like it's worth watching. And I think I'd be able to be able to pick up the pieces without going back and revisiting uh, Karate Kid. There's enough in the first episode of flashbacks to some of the events of the Karate Kid film that you don't need to go back to the Karate Kid film to understand the rivalry between the two. It uses the old footage beautifully. Cool. Okay, my neat thing is, and I've not finished it, I've just started reading it, and that's the sequel to Bird Box, the novel, and to some extent what um, what they did on the Netflix film, and that's Mallory, again written by Joss Malerman. Okay, so the first book and film particularly followed um, Mallory as she encountered this entirely new work. As you know, if you saw whatever the terror was, it, it sent you insane. This picks up uh, several years later, and it's now not just about the, her singular story. She now has a family protect, and and it's very much what happens is that her and her family have to traverse this this terrible world and and what it's become. So it goes into much more in depth about about what's become of of, of everything around us. I wouldn't have thought that Bird Box needed a sequel. I thought it kind of finished in an, an ideal place. Uh, as I said, this takes now. Um, uh, two years later, uh, initially, and then we jump forward again. But the, the premise is blowing me away so far. I still, there's a lot of questions that need answering. Uh, it's got a kind of a Lovecraft feel to it as, as we start to centre around what these creatures are. And, and it's just a damn good read. And it reads like the perfect sequel to a, to a film and the book, which I've not read the original book. Thoroughly enjoying it. And the amazing thing is, you, you can now picture the cast because you've you've seen them in your in your head. It's it's really really a good and actual scary book. Can't wait to get it finished, and I'm reading it like gangbusters. So he's done the smart approach of realizing that more people know the franchise yeah. from the the film from Netflix, and so it's kind of worked that. Yeah, absolutely. It's taking all the all the cool elements that you that you saw, which was again based very closely on the book. But it's 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 enabled you to say, okay, you've only you've only seen Bird Box on Netflix, you can still pick up what's going, and the references are are broad enough uh, for you to, for you to understand. But it's of course the dynamic now is that she is with a family, and the family are more grown up, and they are discovering this world as well. Uh, and there's a an intensity to it, and and a real sense of fear running through it. It's a, it's a really good read, and I'll let you know what I think of it when I've finished. Sounds fantastic. Okay, that's it for this week's show. Stick around for our, well... Spoilerific Spoilerific look, look at Tenet. <laughs> and as ever, I end with a, a film quote. And this week, there's only, there's only two words that matter. Wakanda forever. So, this is your final warning. If you've not watched Tenet... It's time to stop this episode. Don't worry on whatever service you use, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Remember where you stop so you can listen to this once you've watched the film. But now we're going to talk about the film and actually talk about elements of the plot. Okay. So as we said earlier on, this is uh, Nolan doing Bond, taking everything that he loves about Bond, charismatic spy character, uh, the thrills, the globetrotting uh, locations, and then he's 
he's Nolanized it, hasn't he? By giving it he's the element that he always Nolanized does in all it. of his films, which is playing with linear and time. Not necessarily time travel, has made very, very clear this is not a time travel movie, even though they time travel. <laughs> Effectively, Effectively, yeah. Effectively, yeah. It, it's basically that sometime in the distant future, we're not told when, they've discovered a way to irradiate things in a certain way so that they start to travel backwards through time and they work out ways to create chambers that you can switch going in one side it rotates around you come out in the backwards timeline and you work through time backwards and it 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 all sounds so clever except it isn't it's not as clever as it thinks it is because it creates so many problems yeah it's it's when you start to break it down. As, as the problem is with all time travel films, it's got an internal logic. Now, you can you can use that internal logic in the way that the Back to the Future used it and, and, and to some extent, Avengers Endgame and, and go, okay, this, this, these are the rules that we've made up. But it's never too clear about its own rules in this for me. I yeah. got utterly confused by the ending. It looks great. It's a battle sequence, as they use the term. It's a pincer movement within two time zones. But the, the big question is why? Why did they need to do that? Um, you could have had a perfectly interesting spy movie that didn't need this, this time-traveling device to it. And, and I keep yeah. saying it's not a film about time travel, but it is. There's things like the freeway chase in it, which when you see it, the, the normal time frame around, and then this car starts chasing them, going backwards and you're like oh well that's obviously the backwards time but what's going on and then when it plays it the way around it actually makes no sense that car seemed to be chasing them because they it was a passover of a device that the car that was chasing them why did it why did it not just turn away and go a different way why did it continue to follow their patterns it didn't work (laughs) it thought it was being smart but in trying to be smart it flops and the biggest problem is that it tries to explain how this temporal backwards thing works. And in trying to explain it, because this is a fictional thing and it can't ever work, it's only theorised, of course it's going to be flawed. The best time travel films don't explain things. They just let you accept it. Like you say, Back to the Future, it does its split lines and just goes, "Eh," and has fun with it. Edge of Tomorrow does brilliant time travel because it never explains how the time travel works. This film like Interstellar before it, when it has time mechanics getting warped, it fails because it tries to think that it's clever enough to explain what's happening, and it doesn't. And the more that you think about any of the sections of this film where it interlocks, which is you know a nice term to use, seems though the whole Tenet thing is that in order to get into this secret organization, you interlock your fingers together and say tenet in a conversation. The interlocking is where it falls apart because none of it actually works as well as the film thinks it does. Yeah, it's it's a it's a hard film. It's a film you've got to study and watch, which is, you know, it's a challenging bit of cinema. And it's and and I said earlier on, let's get one thing clear. This is a cinematic movie as one would expect from Nolan. He does all the things he likes to do. The effects work is seamless, and it's not just a case of flipping a car backwards and in reverse, et cetera, et cetera. The way that people interact in the different time zones is is very, very clever, but it makes your head hurt. And it has the, the problem I have with most Nolan films. He is a bravado filmmaker. 
you can see his influences. You can see Kubrick especially being an influence. And all the yeah. same problems that Kubrick has, he's a, he's a cold, clinical storyteller. And the heart of this film isn't the leading man. Now, I thought Washington is good. He's likable. He's not the most interesting character in this. And I said, Debecky is much more because she's she's uh, she's challenged, even though she does fall into female violence for the sake of where I didn't think it was necessary. But Robert Patterson stole this movie for me because he's the most likable character on screen. Yeah. And it's the same way that, yes, you root for Luke Skywalker, but Han Solo is the one that you dig the most. It's let itself down. It feels smug. Yeah, because if you don't get it, then, then it's it's your fault. It's not the storytelling's fault. Yeah, and I don't want a film trying to be smug at me because I can't understand how your mechanics work. You know, I don't want a film to think it's cleverer than I am. I want a film to in, like intelligently bring me along with the story. I want to, I want Inception level of intelligence. I don't want a film to think that it's cleverer than Inception. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great looking film. It there's some great moments. Even even from the offset, I mean, it, it throws you straight into the opera scene with a whole like takedown of an organization getting done within an opera, and it's loud and it's visually brilliant. And that's when it throws in the first bit into like bullets going backwards in time great spectacle and it does feel like there's a load of great spectacle moments in this film and then nolan went how do i piece these together uh let's loosely thread a story that doesn't need to be there yeah and the score by ludwig goranson who gave us the marvelous scores for creed creed 2 and black panther but here taking a very zimmer-esque approach and like you say all of the events the pincer movement through time with one team going starting off later on and working backwards and that this team starting earlier on working forwards to meet up at this point it could have just been two different teams attacking at the same time it wouldn't have made any difference it was a great opportunity for a great piece of bravado filmmaking there's a couple of moments in the film when it does little things that later on it ends up being a big reveal it's like oh that was a twist wasn't it and that's not a very good twist it's like, oh, 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 that's going to be that character. Oh, oh, that's going to be that character going backwards. All the twists are so signposted, yet they think that they're really hidden and like, and like embedded. It's not, it's not, it's not a good film. No, and I agree <laughs> with you. I mean, let, let's say it, that, that Nolan is a fantastic filmmaker. He's got an underlying, yeah, you know, his commitment to to film, the commitment to using and still shooting on film. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big screen film. It has to be seen at the cinema. It has to be seen on the, the, the best screen with the best sound you can get. And let's leave the side sound because we could be here forever. But there's a lot riding on this film to be the saviour of yeah. cinema. And I don't think this film is because I, I think it's, it's bewildering at times, confusing in a way that, in a way that, yes, of course, there's nothing wrong with challenging your audience and nothing wrong with giving you, your audience a lot to think about. But when it goes over their heads and you feel as though you, you should be a nuclear physicist just to get what the premise is, <laughs> uh, and we prove that audiences can take challenging because Inception works. Inception works on yeah. every level by taking that heist movie and giving it the, for want of a better term, the Nolan twist. This, this is like over-Nolanized. Let's take the James Bond. Let's do this twist on it that isn't time travel. Keep saying that, and uh, and, and wants wants to produce this this barnstorming and brainstorming uh, action movie. 
lots and lots of elements work. It is a great looking action film. But once you get past the intricacies of the plot and the plot is the thing that's driving this, this particular movie, then you're left with a lot of questions and not much in the way of answers, even though it does set itself up for, for sequels and with <laughs> characters who've died to be able to come back. How I feel about whether they'll he'll actually get around to doing more stories with these characters, I'm not, I wouldn't be rushing out to watch them. It's a bold film. It's a bold film uh, with some great storytelling some fantastic visuals, but it is baffling. And the baffling, unfortunately, outweighs the spectacle of it for me. Yeah, thoroughly agree. So thank you for sticking around to listen to us talk a bit more in detail about what didn't work for the film. For and us. we'll see you again next week. It's always a joy uh, to, to present this to you. I couldn't do this without my right-hand man, Mr. Andy Meakin. Thank you. And we'll see you <laughs> very soon. I'm impressed. That was the first time you've actually said tenant and not tenant. <laughs> I posted out on Twitter about a month and a half ago. You know what I find really, really sweet is that I used to correct my co-host whenever he said tenant instead of tenant, but now I just let him do it because I think it's really charming. <laughs>